Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Shelvin and Gina Venzel. Today, we have Patrick Nightingale, Board of Directors for the Medical Cannabis Society, Director of Pittsburgh Chapter of Normal, and a former prosecutor and practicing criminal defense attorney in state and federal courts in PA. Patrick and his wife, Teresa, were active in the fight for medical cannabis, and they're a true power couple continuing to advocate on behalf of medical cannabis patient community. Thanks for joining us today, Patrick. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure uh, uh, to join you and to have the opportunity to discuss some very critical issues confronting uh, our medical patient uh, community here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I'm just so delighted to have you on the vine. You know, you and Teresa have become good friends to me over the years on our journey advocating for cannabis reform. And in Pittsburgh, you know, I feel like you're the first guy that gets called for every radio show and television station when they have any cannabis related news. So we know that you're definitely, you know, really involved in the industry. And yet I don't believe that I really know the story about how you first got your start in the cannabis industry. So I wondered if maybe we could start there. Well, it, it's kind of funny. I, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, kind of backed my way into it. Uh, it was May of 2009. I'm driving on the turnpike and I heard that the Pennsylvania legislature had just introduced a medical marijuana bill. Now, you've got to remember, this was 2009, and in Pennsylvania, this was groundbreaking news. I literally had to pull over, and I immediately looked up uh, the Philly chapter of Normal and reached out uh, uh, to both Chris Goldstein and Derek Rosenzweig, uh, asking how I could get involved. And you know, to show my naivete, at that time, I thought, hey, a bill's been introduced. That means, you know, we're going to have a law coming right around the corner. No big deal, right? Hitch my uh, uh, um, jump on the bandwagon, you know, so to speak. Little did I know how many years it would take before we actually had, you know, real groundswell of support for medical cannabis in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So, I decided to establish or reestablish the local Pittsburgh Normal chapter because my idea was to put a more professional face on the cause of cannabis reform. You know, you know back in, in 2009, you know, in the 2000s, if someone you know, mentioned cannabis reform, I think that uh, people who are not familiar with the uh, cannabis or not familiar with the, the industries that were emerging in other states would necessarily think, oh, Tommy Chong or maybe Snoop or, you know, some type of, you know, stereotype that would cause them not to take it seriously. So, you know, I thought that by adding my voice as a former prosecutor and practicing criminal defense attorney, I would be able to, you know, kind of cut through uh, those stereotypes and effectively address both legislators and the broader, uh, you know, audience uh, here in Pennsylvania as we started to have this discussion. Uh, it proved uh, to be effective and, you know, we were able to draw a lot of attention to it, but we were in the wilderness for years with uh, uh, former Governor Corbett, who promised a veto of any legislation. Um, in 2011, the Republican majority took over the House and the Senate, and there was absolutely no movement on medical marijuana bills, uh, you know, for a number of years, literally until uh, 2013. And even then, that was another three years before we had uh, the bill signed by Governor Wolf. So it's been a uh, it's been an interesting process. I did not anticipate that here we, we would be eleven years later. You know, still, you know, fighting. Uh, you know, I thought I would get in there, you know, do what I could, and then you know, turn it over to you know more seasoned activists or lobbyists. But I'm still here, I guess. 
So Jim has told me so much about you and your wife, Teresa. Um, and I know that she's joined you in lobbying in Harrisburg. What is the current status of PA in terms of possible adult use? Well, it's both exciting and very, very frustrating right now. You know, in the Pennsylvania legislature, we have, I believe, 11 different pieces of legislation that include decriminalization, full adult use um, regulation, creating a regulated marketplace of cultivation and distribution, DUI reform bills, banking bills, uh, even a uh, bill that would allow school nurses to act as caregivers. We have the full-throated support of our executive branch in Lieutenant Governor Fetterman and uh, Governor Tom Wolf. And you would think with all of this going on that we would be uh, you know, literally on the verge of passing meaningful cannabis reform here in Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, Democrats can introduce as many bills as they want. Um, Pennsylvania's Republican Party controls both the House and the Senate and therefore set the legislative agenda. What this means is the Republican committee chair, if they do not want to move this legislation, can just let it die in committee. And many of these bills, you know, such as uh, Senator Street's, uh, you know, decriminalization bill and full legalization bill have just been sitting in committee for over a year and a half with no movement whatsoever. So until we find a way to you know, bring uh, Republican leadership on board, I just don't see any, any of this moving. And it's very, very frustrating because, for example, the district, attorney, uh, the district Attorneys Association, a conservative body uh, made up of the 67 elected district attorneys in the uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, well, uh, actually, Larry Krasner opted out of it uh, because he hates them and they don't like him either. Uh, but this very uh, conservative group has supported uh, decriminalization. Law enforcement broadly supports decriminalization. We have over 20,000 Pennsylvanians annually charged with a mere possession offense despite decriminalization ordinances in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, State College. Um, and if we're going to start having this discussion about a regulated uh, marketplace of cultivation, processing, and distribution, why are we still arresting, prosecuting, and convicting 20,000 Pennsylvanians every year for something that uh, we're talking about fully legalizing and taxing? Right. And I would think that maybe because of the pandemic, that in the fact that our state really it needs the money that maybe some of the more conservative members of our, our Congress and legislator would say, hey, now's the time to do this. So I was really surprised to see the kind of halt again, you know, even with a call from the governor to, you know, hey, I'll sign a bill if it crossed my desk. I mean, he put it out there. It was out there in the news. And then to just see again, here we go, all the support and it just completely stops. And I'm just really concerned about where we go from here. I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion and a lot of frustration by a lot of people. And of course, you know, they take it to social media. And I see some of the comments that happen on the Pittsburgh Normal page and, you know, just put it on the ballot. We want our home grow, you know, and I see that. And I, I just, I feel like, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? I think people want to know, like, why can't we just put it on the ballot and vote that we want, you know, cannabis to be legalized? And I well, talked to somebody today who said, oh, it's going on the ballot in PA in November. So we're working towards legalization. <laughs> You know, the, the easiest way that, you know, I tried to explain this is that Pennsylvania's legislature functions exactly like the United States Congress. 
the only way that legislation gets passed in Pennsylvania is if it's introduced by either a member of the House or a member of the Senate. The bill then goes into committee and the committee either brings the, the bill for a vote and yes or no, and you know the bill may get out of committee, or the committee chair will elect to not bring the bill for a vote, and it dies in committee. Literally, what you know, I, I was sharing uh, via Pittsburgh Normal and this conversation, uh, I'm going to do it again. It's the you know good old fashioned schoolhouse rocks. I'm just a bill here on Capitol Hill. Da, 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 da. I don't know the rest of the lyrics, but that you know, four-minute little uh, uh, video explains the legislative process in the United States Congress and the legislative process in Pennsylvania. We do not have ballot initiatives. You know, if we put something on the ballot, it is non-binding. It's you know, kind of like an, an opinion poll. And in fact, uh, Senator Brewster introduced uh, SB, I think SB 527, which would place a non-binding referendum on the November ballot, you know, to survey, you know, Pennsylvanians' attitudes about it. Unfortunately, he only had two co-sponsors and that bill's not getting out of committee. So we won't mm. not be seeing anything on the November ballot. But, you know, for, you know, for your listening audience, um, the only way that we get laws passed in Pennsylvania is through the Pennsylvania legislature. And that's why when you have a majority party that seems out of step or out of touch with what the majority of voters uh, want to have happen, it's, it's very, very frustrating. And, you know, I think that playing out in the broader, uh, uh, the broader scene in Harrisburg is, Gina, as you mentioned, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a tremendous amount of hostility from uh, uh, the Republican Party towards uh, Governor Wolf and his handling of the pandemic. Um, I think, as you saw, the, the governor was recently, well, the governor was sued by lawmakers and, uh, and counties and businesses, and a federal judge ruled that, you know, some of Governor Wolf's um, uh, proclamations, such as restricting uh, the number of people that can gather and the stay-at-home order and uh, the business closure orders were deemed unconstitutional. Uh, the Republican Party, uh, in a bipartisan, uh, broadly bipartisan move, attempted to uh, override the governor's veto of uh, a bill that would allow people to attend sporting events. So, you know, the mood, I think, in, in Harrisburg is rather toxic, and I don't see uh, uh, the grand old party being willing to, you know, give Governor Wolf a win on this issue uh, at the moment. And, you know, the, the idea of bringing one of the fastest growing industries to uh, Pennsylvania with high paying jobs, with good jobs, um, you know, potentially creating 50 to 100,000 jobs in the cannabis industry is extremely, you know, exciting to talk about. Uh, clearly, uh, there is a tremendous amount of revenue that can be generated from legal cannabis sales, uh, but that's not going to happen overnight. As we saw with the medical cannabis program, it took almost two years from the day that Governor Wolf signed the bill to the first medical cannabis uh, sales uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, promises of 500, 600 million dollars in recurring revenue is simply not going to matriculate overnight. It's going to take some time. Uh, so the economic argument I think is a good one. However, don't rush uh, legislation through without having the opportunity to really understand what's in it. Um, 
with our medical program, you know, lawmakers decided to create, you know, sort of a, you know, a closed uh, system, uh, almost a, you know, limited monopoly of sorts with a very, you know, small number of players providing uh, medical cannabis. And as a result, we've seen very, very high prices. You know, we don't have a true free market when it comes to our medical cannabis program. It's a, it's a regulated market and it's a limited market. Uh, I don't want to see that happen with uh, with a full legalization program, because right now Pennsylvanians can can get cannabis if they want it. You know, we probably have close to two million uh, cannabis consumers in Pennsylvania who at least consume on some regular basis. They don't have any problems accessing cannabis, and if what they are told is, hey, you can buy legal cannabis, but it's going to uh, cost twice as much as what you're already getting right now those revenue dollars are not going to be realized. You know, California is experiencing that where they have a, a very heavily regulated uh, system. And, you know, they're probably, they estimated they could bring in $2 billion uh, annually in tax revenue. And I think they brought in $1.2 billion. You know, that's the risk of failing by, you know, making too much of a money grab or, you know, putting a program in place that causes products to cost more than they do on the black market. And, you know, I don't think that we will be able to realize that type of uh, revenue. So, you know, I, I hate to use this phrase, but just pump the brakes a little bit and let's make sure that whatever legislation goes through, uh, number one, it ensures a free and fair uh, marketplace for all Pennsylvanians to compete, not just large out-of-state corporate interests yes. like we have in our medical program right now. Pennsylvania farmers deserve an opportunity to participate in this industry. Pennsylvania small business owners deserve a, uh, an opportunity to participate in this industry. Totally agree. Absolutely. And uh, Elizabeth and I last night, we're, we uh, joined the Americans for Safe Access webinar for the State of the States report, and it listed Pennsylvania's rating a C plus this year. Um, I believe Maryland got a B plus. A B plus, but Virginia got an F. I remember that part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, did. but some of the they said that each state doesn't, you know, oh, just because you pass or become legal uh, adult use legal in the state doesn't mean that your score goes up. A lot of scores go down because when they rushed into having an adult use legalization plan, they didn't do so in the right way, and they have this massive rubric. And we're going to have a, a blog about it on our. Uh, Plant Media Project website about the recap of it, but it was really interesting to see because people love to say that Pennsylvania has such a great program. We're just the best, the best. But to get our report card and to see that we only got a C plus, and then to read a blog post that you recently wrote, um, and it really—I mean, it just—it affected me. I mean, I, I really would hope that we could take a couple minutes and maybe talk about, you know your article about cannabis DUIs and the dangers that medical cannabis patients are still facing in PA and also around the country. You know, in Pennsylvania, the DUI situation is something that I consider the most urgent and pressing issue facing uh, Pennsylvania uh, medical cannabis patients. There are 250,000 of us, you know, regularly uh, accessing uh, medical cannabis from the dispensary. That's a quarter million Pennsylvanians who under Pennsylvania's zero tolerance law for THC and THC metabolites are DUI 24-7-365. You know, I'm sure that, you know, our, our, our audience here is familiar with you know, THC uh, 
and its metabolites, uh, tetrahydrocannabinol, um, THC, when it's inhaled, rapidly metabolizes first into its uh, psychoactive uh, metabolite, uh, hydroxy-THC, and then its non-psychoactive metabolite, carboxy-THC. And it's that non-psychoactive metabolite that can be detected in the blood uh, hours, days, even weeks after use. And under Pennsylvania law, what that means is if I go to Detroit, for example, where it is 100% legal and I consume cannabis in Detroit and I come back to Pennsylvania, I can get a DUI in Pennsylvania for the cannabis I legally consumed in Detroit. And what's scary is that law enforcement is very well aware of this. Um, Pennsylvania police, uh, especially Pennsylvania state police, are very well aware that carboxy THC can be detected even if someone is not impaired from cannabis. And what I have seen in my practice is multiple instances of uh, law enforcement literally manufacturing a DUI as soon as they find out that the motorist is a medical cannabis patient. Unfortunately, you know, our medical cannabis uh, card looks almost identical to yep. a driver's license. Ours and too patient, in Maryland. Yep. And patients will uh, inadvertently hand over that card to a law enforcement officer. Now, all of a sudden, that officer knows that you, know, you most likely have carboxy THC in your system. Um, patients will uh, you know, have medical cannabis products visible in the interior of their car. An officer looks in the window, sees packaging from, uh, from a dispensary. Now that officer is going to you know, proceed with the DUI investigation. Um, some patients, you know, if an officer comes up to them and says, is there anything I should know about? Do you have any drugs or weapons in the car? And patients naively, um, thinking that they're doing the right thing will say, yeah, officer, I just want to let you know that I'm a medical marijuana patient. You know, sir, ma'am, can you step from the motor vehicle? I need you to uh, perform some field sobriety tests. And in Pennsylvania, we are what's called an implied consent state. You do not have a right to refuse a uh, chemical test if an officer asks you to take a chemical test. If you do refuse, you lose your license for a year automatically. And that officer could still get a search warrant for your, your blood if they had probable cause. Um, so that means that you know any medical cannabis patient, if that officer suspects that you may uh, have uh, uh, detectable amounts of carboxy THC in your blood, They'll ask for that uh, chemical test, and that chemical test will literally convict you of DUI. Can they tell right there on the spot? No, they can't tell right there on the spot. And what uh, police, the affidavits of probable cause that I read, there will, you know, generally uh, speaking, be some allegation of an odor of cannabis emanating from the interior of the motor vehicle or an admission by the motorist that, no, I didn't you know, use medical cannabis today, but I used it yesterday. And that type of admission is going to be sufficient for that officer to develop a probable cause to commence a DUI investigation. Things that police look for, uh, it's really kind of pseudoscience because they claim that a green or chalky tongue is indicative of recent cannabis use, you know, you know a little dry mouth, uh, eyelid tremors, or uh, body tremors are also alleged to be indicative of, uh, of recent uh, uh, cannabis use. And they, they use good old fashioned field sobriety tests, you know, the, the walk and turn, uh, one leg stand, you know, things uh, uh, of that nature. But what is, you know, what is damning for the uh, patient is if the patient admits recent cannabis use. Even if it was the day before, two days before. No, I haven't used my medical cannabis for a couple of days, officer. That's going to be uh, still sufficient for that officer to you know, request a chemical test. 
So what would be a fair way to test for cannabis, in your opinion? Uh, the uh, National Highway Transportation and Safety uh, Administration has promulgated uh, uh, guidelines for law enforcement to detect drug-impaired drivers. They're called uh, A-RIDE, A-R-I-D-E, and that's Advanced Roadside Impairment something-something, uh, but it's uh, <laughs> A-RIDE training. And officers that go through this training are then deemed to be drug recognition experts. And the A-RIDE training or the A-RIDE protocol encompasses the totality of the circumstances, all the way from you know the nature uh, of the traffic stop. Was someone stopped merely because they you know may have had a malfunctioning taillight, or someone weaving in and out of traffic? Uh, in the case of a drug impaired driver, police may be um, you know looking for signs that someone is going far below the speed limit. You know, unaware of a uh, uh, light changing from uh, red to green. You know, things of that nature. Then the initial encounter with the motorist. What does the officer observe? Does the officer observe, uh, for example, uh, uh, drug paraphernalia or controlled substances that would cause the officer to believe the motorist is impaired? Is there an odor emanating from the motor vehicle that may suggest recent cannabis use? And that's, you know, Pennsylvania has what's called the plain smell doctrine, but I'm of the opinion that uh, uh, legal hemp is going to render that uh, 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 illegal, but we just haven't litigated that issue yet. Um, but an odor of cannabis, and then you know, asking the the driver, you know, sir, have you, uh, you know, consumed any drugs, drugs or alcohol recently? Because motorists will often think, hey, if I give that officer just a little bit, he'll leave me alone. You know, I can't tell you how many times when I was a prosecutor, I would see an affidavit of probable cause where the motorist would say, no, officer, I only had one or two beers. And well, that's going to be enough for that officer to say, okay, now I'm going to proceed with a uh, with a DUI investigation. Similarly, for a cannabis consumer, no, I didn't smoke today, but I smoked yesterday. Or no, I didn't smoke now, or I consume cannabis now, but I did this morning. You know, that type of admission is going to be a big part of that DUI investigation. And motorists do not have a right to refuse to answer those questions. Miranda doesn't apply during a DUI investigation. And if you refuse to answer those questions, ultimately that can be deemed a refusal with the, the one-year license suspension. Then, you know, further observations of the motorist. Does the motorist have glassy or bloodshot eyes, for example? Is the motorist's demeanor uh, in uh, uh, dealing with the officer inconsistent with what a, you know, normal or sober person would do? Uh, if the motorist is, you know, like hysterically laughing or something like that or giggling or, or weeping excessively. These are not, you know, typical behaviors uh, for a routine traffic stop. And that would be another thing that that officer would add to his, prop, his or her probable cause assessment. Then the next step is, you know, standard field sobriety tests, balancing tests. Uh, and a, a drug impaired driver likely would exhibit some of the same lack of coordination that an alcohol impaired driver uh, may exhibit. They also uh, do physical observations, horizontal gaze nystagmus, where they will use a pen and a, a light to track the pupils. And if the uh, pupils kind of jerk while they're tracking, that's also indicative of uh, impairment. Um, I mentioned the, the uh, green or chalky tongue, eyelid tremors, all of those are part of this, you know, A-RIDE protocol. And the drug recognition expert will sit with the motorist. They'll take their pulse. 
They'll you know, ask questions for admission, they'll make physical observations, and then at the conclusion of that protocol, that drug recognition expert will make uh, offer an opinion as to whether or not the motorist was impaired because of uh, a recent uh, drug ingestion. But what's frustrating here in Pennsylvania is under our zero tolerance law for schedule one substances and their metabolites, impairment does not need to be proven. That means that patients can be arrested, prosecuted, and convicted of DUI in Pennsylvania without any evidence of actual impairment. Uh, and that's what I think it has got to change. Uh, I think that uh, in the legislation, the, the bills that are pending in the House and the Senate would do this. It would treat a medical cannabis patient uh, the same as someone using a Schedule II controlled substance, require, or a Schedule II prescription controlled substance requiring proof of actual impairment. If I'm using OxyContin that my doctor prescribed for me, I can still get a DUI if it impairs me. If it doesn't impair me, I can use that OxyContin and drive. Same with uh, benzodiazepines or you know any other Schedule II uh, controlled substance. Why should cannabis be any different? And you know, some of the pushback that we have been getting is, oh, you just want to be able to, you know, drive high. This is ridiculous. You're going to kill people on the road. Absolutely not. Uh, first and foremost, never operate a motor vehicle when you're impaired by cannabis, alcohol, or uh, prescription medications. I mean, first and foremost, don't do it. The issue that we have here are motorist patients who are not impaired, who are still being charged with DUI because of a detectable amount of a non-psychoactive metabolite in their blood. And that non-psychoactive metabolite has no bearing on impairment whatsoever. In fact, testing or you know, prosecuting DUIs based on carboxy-THC was declared unconstitutional in Arizona for Arizona medical cannabis patients. So we've you know, got some precedent out there that says, you know, carboxy-THC is completely unreliable when, you know, trying to assess uh, whether or not a motorist was actually impaired at the time that they were operating a motor vehicle. And Are there technologies out there yet that where people can be, I've heard like swabbed in the mouth that they would know, you know, did you consume two hours ago or three weeks ago? Or yeah. Is there anything out there? Like they're, they're, they're trying to bring uh, either a THC breathalyzer or a THC uh, swab to market. I haven't seen anything that demonstrates uh, that those are reliable indicators of anything other than uh, the fact that there was some uh, THC in someone's system. So not like a, a breathalyzer where you can breathe into it and it will give you a you know specific nanogram per milliliter uh, uh level of uh, either delta-9 THC or uh, or those metabolites. I would say that those types of devices would probably be more analogous to portable uh, breath tests, which is something an officer can utilize on the roadside as part of their investigation, but which would not actually be admissible at trial. You know, a portable breath test would just say, hey, either this person has some alcohol in their, in their system or they don't. Uh, and then if it registers, yes, there's alcohol in the, in the person's system, then that officer would would continue with the DUI investigation. Probably something similar, but again, if this uh, device to detect uh, a THC or THC metabolites uh, in a zero-tolerance state like Pennsylvania, you know, all it does is cuts right to the chase. Oh, it shows some, you know, uh, some amount of THC in your system. Therefore, under our zero tolerance law, I know you're guilty. And that's, you know, the issue. 
Pennsylvania is in the minority of states that have zero tolerance for uh, Schedule One or Schedule Two controlled substances. Uh, some states have a, a, a THC level. Colorado's is five nanograms per milliliter, fairly low. Um, other states, you know, have maybe ten nanograms per milliliter. Other states do not have a per se cutoff. Uh, uh, nanogram per milliliter uh, levels can be admissible as evidence of impairment, but not you know per se like we do for uh, blood alcohol uh, uh, content in Pennsylvania. Um, so you know it isn't you know it isn't the case that we are asking our legislature to do something that is unheard of in other states. I mean there are states that completely prohibit you know, cannabis in any form whatsoever that do not have a zero tolerance uh, cannabis uh, DUI statute. And to make <laughs> to make matters even worse, you know, a first uh, DUI offender, you're uh, going to be eligible for Pennsylvania's Alternative Rehabilitative Disposition Program, ARD. It's for first time offenders. And when you successfully complete the program, your record gets expunged. You only get ARD once every 10 years. A second DUI within 10 years, uh, controlled substances DUI, is a mandatory 90 days incarceration and an 18-month license suspension. A third DUI within uh, 10 years is a mandatory one year in Pennsylvania state prison, and it's a felony. So those are the stakes that Pennsylvania medical cannabis patients are facing. First time, all right, you get your slap on the wrist. Second time, your life will literally be ruined by using a, a medical product that was approved by the state legislature. Um, and it gets even worse. If you're driving with a child in your car. That was the part that you, I mean, when I read that, Patrick, I'm telling you as a mom and as a patient, it terrifies me. And especially the age of the child having a range of, of, no. of, of, the, of it. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yes, if you're driving with a minor uh, under the age of 14 in your vehicle, you're ineligible for ARD, even if you're a first-time offender. So first-time offender motorists that have kids, if you get uh, uh, caught, you will be convicted of DUI. Additionally, uh, law enforcement will file endangering welfare of children charges. Uh, That can be either a misdemeanor of the first degree, punishable by a maximum of five years incarceration, or if the child is under six, a felony of the third degree, punishable by a maximum of seven years incarceration. So a medical cannabis patient who is not impaired, who is picking their you know, four-year-old up from, uh, uh, from daycare or from school or whatever, can potentially face a felony endangering welfare of children uh, charge, and they are not eligible for alternative rehabilitative disposition, meaning that they get to spend 72 hours in the Allegheny County Jail or whatever local jail uh, and a one-year license suspension. So what does one need to do to find themselves like, you know, if you're in this predicament, I mean, what do you do? I mean, if you're, if you're a mom and you just, you're, you're picking up your four-year-old, you're not impaired at all. And, but you have that in your system, you know, because it can stay in your system for weeks and weeks. So now what do you do if you get in trouble? Well, obviously this is a little uh, self-serving, but you know, get in touch with a lawyer immediately especially a lawyer who is both familiar with DUI. You know, we have a lot of DUI specialists out there that's, you know, if someone's advertising criminal uh, defense, it's usually DUI defense, but also a lawyer who is familiar with medical cannabis, um, Pennsylvania's medical cannabis laws, and how cannabis uh, metabolizes through the body. 
Um, you know, it's it's a little bit more specialized than just a typical alcohol DUI, but you know, get an attorney right away. Uh, depending on what county you are in in Pennsylvania and what your blood levels are, there may be some ability to you know simply go to the prosecuting attorney and beg, you know, for lack of a better term. I, I, I have done that for medical cannabis patients before and just said, please, please look at this case, look at the low uh, blood levels, give me a general impairment DUI so my client at least doesn't lose their driver's license. And depending on, again, the circumstances of the, of the case and the, um, uh, and the THC levels in the blood, that might be possible uh, in certain jurisdictions. But I think this gets into you know, what's going to be the subject of my next blog, and it's practical tips for Pennsylvania patients to avoid a, uh, uh, a, law, a negative law enforcement encounter. You know, practical things that everybody can do. First and foremost, this is the easy one, never drive impaired. That's easy. The second one, very, very easy, obey traffic laws. Don't speed, use your turn signal, stop at stoplights, um, you know, all of that. It's very easy, you know, to you know, make sure that you comply with, with traffic laws. Number three, make sure your vehicle is in proper working order. That means that your taillights are working. That means that the light that illuminates your license plate is properly uh, functioning. That's been a you know called, uh, basis for traffic stops before. If you have aftermarket tint on your vehicle and you're a patient, take it off because that is an easy one for the officer to pull you over and then say, yeah, you know, once I pulled you over, the tint was fine, but now I'm investigating you for a DUI. Happened to a client of mine in, in, in Beaver County, a, a gentleman who had never been in trouble before, who always had a, a, a respect for law enforcement. And he thought that he should make his an admission to that officer that he was a medical cannabis patient. His THC level, 0.65 nanograms per milliliter, okay. almost undetectable. And he still got a DUI. Oh but I was, it, it, that was a case where I was able to, to prevail upon the prosecuting attorney to make it a general impairment DUI. He was ARD eligible, so he didn't lose his, uh, his driver's license despite you know, this ridiculously low level. And you know, what concerned me about that particular case is the trooper lied under oath because the trooper testified under oath that my client admitted to smoking a marijuana cigarette, a joint, immediately prior to driving. And then we get blood results that show, and the, 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 the lab results itself said, you know, uh, consumption most likely four to six hours prior to taking the test. 0.65 nanograms per milliliter, 6.75 nanograms of carboxy THC. I pointed to this, this out to the prosecuting attorney and they said, well, go to trial. Knowing that I would lose a trial, the next best thing was to beg for something that didn't involve a driver's license a suspension. Now, you know, we've got the vehicle in proper working order, the motorist who does not uh, is not impaired and who obeys all traffic uh, uh, laws. But that motorist still gets over, uh, gets pulled over. Well, make sure that if you are transporting medical cannabis, it's in its original dispensary packaging and out of view of the officer. If you have a trunk, put your medical cannabis in your trunk. Um, if you have medical cannabis flour, the packaging is not smell proof. Uh, if you buy flour from the dispensary, you can smell you know, through that packaging. Put that packaging inside something smell proof like a mason jar so that that officer will not detect any odor of either fresh 
any odor of fresh uh, cannabis emanating from the interior of the motor vehicle. Do not have visible uh, cannabis products. You know, don't drive around with a vape cartridge uh, on a stick battery sitting, you know, right next to your gear shift. Yeah, that's immediately going to cause, you know, an officer to uh, begin a, a DUI investigation. Never, ever, and I mean never, ever, ever admit medical cannabis patient status to law enforcement unless you're about to be arrested for your medical cannabis products. And like I said, officer, here's my card and, you know, so on and so forth. Because as soon as you make that admission, then an officer, uh, if they want to, and Pennsylvania State Police have been particularly aggressive about this, in my experience, uh, will then use that admission as a basis to begin that DUI investigation. Uh, the good news is I've, I've had a lot of encounters with local law enforcement um, that maybe they charged my client with paraphernalia because they weren't sure whether it was legal under the act. And Every time I'll say to that officer, officer, I'm very grateful that you did not try to charge my client with DUI. And the response that I get is, you know what? If I thought your client was impaired, I certainly would have. But your client was clearly not impaired, so I'm not going to ruin their life. Many in the Pennsylvania State Police take the exact opposite approach, and it is terrifying, literally terrifying. And for any uh, listeners uh, here in the greater Pittsburgh area, Route 28 North, do not speed. You know, uh, Route 910, the turnpike out in that area, that uh, Pennsylvania State Police barracks are extremely aggressive. Uh, so be very, very careful in that section uh, of Allegheny County, uh, Butler County, uh, Armstrong County. Uh, a lot of my cases come from uh, from that area. Just going to say we're talking about traveling by car. And I want to ask you a personal question because Recently, I traveled by plane, and when I arrived at my destination, I realized I had a disposable uh, vape pen in my purse. So I went through security, obviously, and there was no issue. And then, you know, many people tell me that they travel with their vape pens and edibles in their carry-on. I know it's not dumb luck, so why is this allowed or overlooked? Or what's happening? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it's not allowed. Um, but the issue, uh, TSA is not looking for you know small amounts of of, uh, of cannabis or small amounts of controlled substances. They are screening for uh, bombs, for explosive devices. That's where their focus is. Now, if they happen to find it, right, you can it's going to be confiscated and turned over to local authorities, and you may very well be prosecuted. Got it on. is against federal law to travel from state to state with cannabis, even if you're going from one medical cannabis state to another. Because as soon as you cross state lines, you're engaging in uh, uh, interstate commerce. Uh, federal, uh, federal law has jurisdiction, and that's illegal. Uh, practically speaking, I don't think that there's much um, interest or effort on uh, the part of TSA to try to catch uh, either you know, uh, legal uh, people traveling from a legal state to another legal state or medical cannabis patients. And I've heard stories about people bringing large pieces of paraphernalia in their uh, carry-on luggage. I would never, you know, uh, recommend that, but it seems a matter of, you know, you know, we're not looking for it, but if we catch it, we're going to jam you up. Got so, it. you know, caveat emptor for medical cannabis patients that are traveling uh, uh, via, uh, uh, that are flying from uh, state to state. And, you know, of course, 
uh, depending on whether or not the state you're traveling to has reciprocity, you may very well be illegal um, in the state that you arrive at. Um, Pennsylvania, for example, does not have reciprocity. So a medical cannabis patient flying from California to Pennsylvania, uh, if they have their California medical cannabis, uh, it's illegal in Pennsylvania. If they get caught with it, they will be charged uh, with, with a crime. If you're coming from Colorado, if you're coming from, uh, from Michigan, you're coming from Illinois, you're coming from Massachusetts, it doesn't matter. You know, as soon as you're in Pennsylvania, any uh, either medical cannabis or adult use cannabis from a legal state is 100% illegal. The only protections that we have in Pennsylvania right now is for a registered medical cannabis patient purchasing uh, medical cannabis from uh, the dispensary and keeping that medical cannabis in its original dispensary packaging. A medical cannabis patient with non-dispensary uh, cannabis will still be uh, charged with a crime in Pennsylvania. Wow. I can see why the ASA gave us a C plus. I mean, I'm even after hearing all of this. I don't even know if we deserve that, but I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll 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 take what you know what we've got. I really appreciate you taking the time with us to go through so much. I mean, this is amazing, insightful, important information for not only medical cannabis patients in Pennsylvania, but from wherever our listeners are tuning in. You know, it's it is a responsibility to be a medical marijuana patient, and and it's you know something that we should all continue to talk with our legislators and find how we can, you know, help ensure that patients have more rights. And so I wanted to ask you, Patrick, as we close out, you know, what can listeners and concerned patients do to help pave the way for new laws in PA? And where can patients around the country find out about cannabis DUI's laws in their state? Um, here in Pennsylvania, call your Pennsylvania state representative and call your Pennsylvania state senator. Uh, House Bill 2337 is pending in uh, the House. It was filed by uh, Representative Chris Rabb out of Philadelphia, and it is in the Transportation Committee. Um, uh, Senate Bill 1206 uh, was filed by Senator uh, Bartolotta from Washington County, a Republican, and it is in the uh, the Senate's uh, Transportation Committee. Uh, we are working to you know get some traction for SB uh, 1206, but the pushback I'm getting is uh, there was a, a staffer from Senator Ward's office that said, "Well, wait a minute, you know, medical cannabis uh, uh, can cause impairment. You know, what what are you talking about?" I'm like, "We never said it didn't cause impairment. I mean." You know, it seems that there's very little appetite uh, to to take up even this common sense legislation. But, you know, that's the only path forward is to call your state representative, call your state senator and you know demand that they uh, support the legislation and work to move it uh, through committee um, across the country. Um, it's as simple as, you know, going to Google and Google cannabis laws in my state or cannabis DUI laws in my state. You'll probably get dozens of lawyers, um, you know, uh, websites popping up that explains what you know, cannabis laws are in their state. Uh, Leafly, I believe, uh, has information about it. Uh, Normal.org, uh, go there and you can get links to cannabis laws in, uh, in, in your state. Um, so it's pretty easy just to do a little bit of uh you know, online legal research to get uh, uh, oriented to what uh, cannabis uh, DUI laws are in state by state. And, you know, fortunately for the majority of Americans, they're not dealing with, uh, you know, the zero tolerance laws that we deal with here in Pennsylvania. And if folks want to learn more and read your blog and, and get more insight on the things we talked about today, where can they go? Uh, www.patricknightingale.com. That's my website. <laughs> 
And matter of fact, I don't even think the www is on there anymore. I uh, just Daniel.com. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I've got a number of blogs uh, addressing issues that are relevant for medical cannabis patients, Second Amendment uh, uh, issues, uh, DUI issues. And, you know, we're going to be continuing to, you know, get uh, relevant and fresh content out there uh, for our medical cannabis patient community. And if anyone has any questions, uh, they can email me at pknlaw at macmac.com or call my office 412-454-5582. Thank you so much, Patrick, for joining us today. Thank you. It was my absolute pleasure. Have a great day, guys. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. We hope that you'll subscribe to The Vine, a plant media project podcast on your favorite podcast platform now to never miss an episode. And to learn more about PMP, visit us at plantmediaproject.com.